You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. We had a lot of intramural sports. And so in the fall, we had flag football, and we had basketball, and then we had softball in the spring. And just, again, they're intramural type things, and so it was just a lot of fun to get out there. Um, so it was one spring, it was, it was, we got to the end of the season, it's playoff time. And one of, it didn't happen often, but my floor actually made the playoffs. And so we don't have, we didn't have a lot of athletes, uh, but we had a few. And so and we made the playoffs. And so the, the, each of the teams, each of the floors had kind of like a, an athletic chairman. And so all the athletic chairmen went to the meeting to find out what the different assignments were. How are we gonna be slotted? Who are we playing the first round? That kind of stuff. And so I found out about this from our athletic chairman after he came back. But in the meeting, it was announced that our team, our floor, was going to be playing against a floor called Young Blood. I have no idea why they're called Young Blood, but Young Blood was the floor with all the jocks. I mean, they, I mean, they were competing for the flag football championship every year. They were competing for the basketball championship every winter. And every, every spring, they were in the, play, the playoffs for softball to play for championships. And so when it was announced that we were playing Young Blood, all the other athletic chairmen started saying, mercy rule, mercy rule, mercy rule. Which if you're not, some of you know what that is. So it, th- th- there's actually a, a, a kind of a, a, a rule in place. It's an informal rule, but they applied it. That if you're ahead by 15 runs after three innings, they call the game. Essentially, they're having mercy on the team that's getting beat so it doesn't get worse. So that you don't have to just endure, you know, seven innings of just getting hammered. And so they called it the mercy rule. And so that's what all of them was chanting, mercy rule, mercy rule, because that's, they were saying that, uh, you know, they were going, Jung Blood was going to mercy rule us at the, for the, for our game. Now as these things go, the game was in fact called after three innings because of the application of the mercy rule. However, Young blood did not mercy rule us. We mercy ruled them. And, uh, yeah, it was one of our greatest moments. <laughs> so here's the thing. They had all these great athletes. They, I mean, they, and every one of them, every time they got up to the bat, just tried to knock the living daylights out of the ball. Well, we were, in, we were playing in a field, so there was no fence to hit it over, which meant our outfielders just kept backing up. And so, they, and so they were back up far enough where they couldn't hit it over our heads. And so essentially these long balls, and they were, just, I mean, they were rockets, but they ended up being just long outs because we would catch them. And uh, our team, on the other hand, again, we had a few good athletes, but we realized we're not going to out hit them. And so we played a little more strategically. So if all their outfielders were spaced a certain way, if we saw that there was actually a little gap there, we would try to hit the ball in the gap. So we kept hitting all these singles and singles after singles. And there was one inning, we went through the entire batting order. Nine guys got the bat this one inning and they didn't get us out because we just kept hitting single after single. And after three runs, we were ahead by, after three innings, we were ahead by 15 runs and the game was called um, and we, we mercy ruled them. They would not adjust. They just, they just kept saying, you know, this is what we do. We're the best. So they just kept trying to hit it and kept trying to overpower the ball. And it just wouldn't work. And they should have beaten us. They should have beaten us. Um, but they were so caught up in doing what they wanted to do that they didn't realize that they'd lost sight of what was most important. And they ended up losing the game uh, because of it. 
Sports teams aren't alone in this kind of behavior. People do it too. We get so focused on what we want and so intent on doing things our way, we lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of what's most important. And we end up hurting ourselves and sometimes we end up hurting those close to us as well. Ever know anybody like that? They get so caught up in what they want to do that they lose sight of what's most important. And as a result, they end up hurting themselves, end up hurting others that are close to them. Well, as we've been reading the book of James these last few weeks, James has been talking to professing believers. These are people who claim to be Christ followers. And he's been talking to them about their behavior. And some of their behavior is very misguided. Remember, I mentioned the fact that very prominent in this day were um, zealot revolutionaries. These were Israelis who were adamant about wanting to overthrow the Roman government. And so this idea of rebellion and overthrow was very, very prevalent in in this culture at that point in time. And we know from history that within 10 years of James writing this book, there actually was a physical attempt, a rebellion against Rome to try to overthrow Rome. And it ended in disaster. It was when Rome actually came and they tore down the temple. The temple that you see in Israel today was actually the Temple Mount because that's all that's left. That happened in AD 62, 60. That happened at that point in time because of this rebellion. So this was the culture. This was what was going on at this point in time in history. And so James is, is, is realizing that some of the people are, are, are being misled. They're, they're misguided in their, best, in their intentions. Some of the people are doing it on purpose, but all of their behavior, all of it, what he's pointing out is bad. And we noticed that in the last few weeks, we've, we've learned that uh, James encouraged the people, said, listen, you need to listen to one another. Stop getting angry. You know, instead of trying to want to just force your own opinion on people, just take a moment to listen and to hear what, you know, truly hear what people want to say. Sounds like good advice for today too, doesn't it? Um, he told people to stop showing favoritism to the rich and powerful at the expense of the poor and the weak. I guess that was very common there as well. He told us that faith should be uh, show evidence of Jesus living in you. He was very clear that faith, your, your, um, that your behavior doesn't save you, but your behavior should be evidence of the faith that is within you. And then last week, we actually talked specifically about taming the tongue. This idea that we need to use our words wisely and use them in a way that, that builds people up in, the, in a way that doesn't actually cause more harm and more destruction. So James realizes that just telling someone they're bad may not be enough for them to actually change their behavior. You know, so I can just tell you all day long, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're bad, what you're doing is wrong, wrong. That doesn't mean you're gonna change. So when you get to chapter four here, James changes tactics a little bit. Instead of just telling them about how bad they are and what they need to do, what they're doing uh, incorrectly or doing poorly, he says, he begins to tell us, not only is your behavior bad for others, it's having a bad effect on you too. In other words, not only um, are you using my early analogy of the softball team, not only are you getting out when you get up to bat, you're going to lose the game if you don't change your ways. Something's got to change. So we pick up with verse one of chapter four. And this morning we'll look at the first 10 verses as we um, um, work through this passage. First one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord God, for all that you, um, you, you show us in this passage. And Lord, may we uh, have a better sense of what James is saying that we might be able to apply it to our life today. May we learn from the situation and circumstances that were happening 2,000 years ago. Um, so Lord, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and Holy Spirit, speak to us what you would have us take away from this uh, time this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all know that as a society, um, you know, there, there are rules that we establish for how we're going to live together. I mean, it happens at the, at the family level. Um, husband and wife, you know, this is how we're going to interact. This is how we're going to communicate. Um, there's certain things like, you know, when you have kids, here's certain things we do in our family, certain things we don't do. Um, same of, some of us uh, who live in a neighborhood with an HOA. Uh, even though it's our home, we own it, it's in our name, we, we, we pay mortgage. There are certain things, certain rules that as a neighborhood have been agreed upon that so this is how we're going to live together um, and how we're going to um, you know, just function. So, uh, rules like um, you know, how we deal with property lines. Or I know in some, uh, I think in our neighborhood that um, you're not supposed to park cars in the street overnight. There are certain things that just try to, to manage life together. Now, Someone might come and move in and say, you know what, I understand all this, but you know, it's a free country. I can play the music as loud as I want, anytime I want to. It's my right, I can do that. Well, we also realize that we don't, although we do live in America and we do have freedoms, that it's not unlimited freedoms, that your freedoms can't impinge upon my freedoms, that we need to work it out. There needs to be a compromise there. And so in some ways, you're playing music at one in the morning impinges on my right to get a good night's sleep. So we agreed in our HOA that volume needs to go down at a certain point in time. Well, you might say then, well, it's my house. I can paint it any color I want fluorescent or regular. And again, you would say, well, we live in America, we're free. So, well, yes, but in our neighborhood, we've agreed that there's certain standards we're gonna uphold and your neighbors have a right to be able to drive down the street without having to wear sunglasses because of the glare of your house. Um, and so there's this reasonable expectation again. Or another one might say, you know, it's my house. I'll cut the grass if and when I want. I'll maintain the outside. I'll do these things if and when I want. Well, the, the reality is your inability or, or uh, unwillingness to care for your home negatively affects the value of your neighbor's homes. 
And that's not right either. So again, within every society, whether it's a local one um, or in an HOA or we get into the cities or even in the counties and states and even here in the United States, there are certain rules that we create to govern how we live together and um, how we're gonna function. This is how we're gonna live together. Now, under the best of conditions and with the best of intentions, conflict is possible, isn't it? I mean, we're just all different. We have different tastes, we have different personalities, we have different interests. And so, and I've said this frequently, if we're together long enough, it's not a question of if we have a conflict, it's a question of when. Again, there's no ill, Ill anything about it. It's just we're all wired differently and we, all have, we live differently and have different tastes. However, whenever a person decides to act selfishly, conflict is inevitable conflict will happen. And that's the first point that James is trying to make in this passage we just read. The challenge of wrong motives puts us in conflict with others. James is telling us that when you act selfishly, it will hurt you in the long run. He even uses the words like fights and quarrels, and he even uses the word kill. Now, there's some disagreement about what James is saying there. If you read different um, sources about that and different discussions, some people think that James is, is speaking in, in metaphor, that, that obviously there's some verbal, there's some disagreement, relational discord, but this idea of actual physical fighting and killing is, is probably not an actual, it's a metaphor. I actually lean the other side, or I think James is actually being literal here. Um, again, given the context, the context and what was happening in society in that day, that the presence of zealot infested society. So you have these zealots who were adamant about liberation and, um, um, and they were a part of the Christ followers. I mean, just like someone who comes to Christ and they said, all right, now I'm gonna start joining this Christian group. Well, they don't just all of a sudden leave their past behind them. Their past comes with them. And it's part, so we're seeing this intermingled here, what's happening. And so James is recognizing that some of these people actually think that it's okay to murder for the greater good, that it's okay to take someone's life if it's gonna further your cause. And some of these people were willing to fight to the death for national freedom. Now, that's not so far-fetched. We see some of that even today. Um, we see that. Again, we see people who are willing to bomb abortion clinics. As terrible and as, and as things as abortion clinics are, this idea of, of taking life to preserve life is a really, really slippery slope. And, and so we see that even in our own day where that could become an issue. I think this is what James is actually dealing with in his church. That there were things happening that these were some of the conversations that he had people there who were actually willing to go to these extremes for their own cause. And James is saying that you've got, what you've done here is you've cut God out of the picture. You, you have this goal, you have this objective, and, in, and instead of engaging God and letting God help you get there, you've actually cut God out and you're trying to reach your means on your own because of your own interests. And then he says, you don't have, in other words, you haven't, re, you haven't realized the freedom, you haven't realized the things you're wanting because you don't ask. And so you take matters into your own hands. And then he says, um, you know, even if you were to ask, because you're asking for selfish reasons, selfish motivations, you're not gonna get it anyways. That's not what God is, is that's not what God's about. You're asking for, um, for things that are selfish and all you want really is ill intent for other people. The challenge of wrong motives puts us in conflict with other people. 
James is very clear about that. Second thing he, he points out in this second section of the passage we read is that the challenge of spiritual adultery puts us in conflict with our affections. James actually uses the term, you adulterous people. I mean, that, that's, he's not pulling punches there. Um, that's a serious accusation and really offensive. I mean, think of it, someone calls you and says, you're, you're a, you know, any of us who might be married to be accused of adultery is, is, I mean, that's, and that's what he's doing here. Now, we also, we, we, there is great agreement there that this is not a literal adultery, it's spiritual adultery. What James is doing here, he's alluding to references we see in the Old Testament from the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel, uh, specifically like Ezekiel chapter 16, where God is talking to the Israelites. He's talking through the prophet Ezekiel and God accuses the Israelites of adultery where he says, I am the one, I am your spouse, so to speak, and you are turning your back on me and you're going to other gods. And so God uses that metaphor and that's what is going on here. This was a reference that was understood by everyone who read James' letter. Again, James is a Jew writing to Jews. They understood this reference. They understood what he was talking about. And James says, listen, instead, except instead of worshiping other gods, you've become friends with the world in pursuit of your own selfish desires. So it wasn't a specific God, but you've traded God and the ways of God for the ways of the world and the values of the world and for your own selfish interests and purposes. Either way you wanna look at it, James is saying, you've turned your back on God. Now, I've been thinking this, this all week about this idea of having a relationship with God. And, and, I, and I think we all get the metaphor that, you know, especially if we're in a relationship and, and someone was been talking about, someone turns our back and walks away. And so we get all that. But there's, there's another side of human relationships that I think that actually is a little challenge for us when it comes to God. And the challenge is this, is that many of our human relationships are optional. They're optional. I mean, even, even the, the, the marriage relationship. And again, I'm not trying to minimize the hurt and pain or anything, but when half of a marriage is end in divorce, what happens, we lear we've learned over time, if that happens to us, that, I mean, life doesn't end, we cope. You know, we, we make adjustments, we learn to function, and life goes on. So again, I'm not trying to minimize that at all. I'm just saying that this idea of relationships, we don't always have this idea that relationships sometimes aren't, we just can't pick and choose one that, that work. And even if you talk about like, a, I'll use another analogy there, like a dating relationship, or you just met someone and you're just beginning to know them and it's still early on in the relationship, there's nothing wrong with not having deep emotions for that other person. Um, in other words, it, while it might be painful for the other person to hear you say this, it's okay to say, I like you as a friend, but I just don't feel the same way about you. All right? that's, that's, that's part of the dynamic of human relationships. It's, it's, that's, and that's acceptable. Again, it's not pleasant, but we get that that's just part of sometimes how relationships work. That, that there's this clear understanding that this relationship in particular and other relationships, they're optional. That's why I think it's, that we get so excited when we actually meet somebody who feels the same way about us as we feel about them. It's just all this excitement and joy and because that's a really cool thing to, to be able to share those feelings and emotions with one another. Now we need to remember though that in the Israelite culture at this time in history, God was everything to them. 
God was not optional. God was center of their culture. All of life centered around God and their relationship to him. It was not something they could just pick and choose. It was central to who they were. Um, In in Deuteronomy 6, it says, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. It was all-consuming. God was central to everything they were. And James is saying, likewise, as a Christ follower, our relationship with God through Jesus is not optional. It's the most important relationship that we can have. So James is talking to the Israelites in his letter and he's saying, you need to quit being selfish. You need to quit thinking only of yourselves. And you need to quit trying to solve your problems on your own. The challenge of spiritual adultery is that it puts us in conflict with our infections. Then lastly, the challenge of pride puts us in conflict with God. The people had become confident in their own abilities to attain their desired goals. I mean, for many of them, it was working. They'd become wealthy, they'd become influential, they'd become powerful, it was working. And they were acting independently from God. And they were taking pleasure and enjoying the outcomes, even if it was at the expense of someone else, and regardless of the the impact it had on other people. And if there's any doubt about the seriousness of their behavior or the lack of their relationship with God, James then removes all doubt. And he says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Boy, he doesn't pull punches. He doesn't just say anymore like, oh, you know, it's just kind of a bad thing or you shouldn't do that. He says, he puts it in very stark terms. You're an enemy of God. James then repeats the source of their problems. It's selfishness and pride But then he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. James is quite clear about the state of their lives in relationship to God. And he says, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You keep swinging for the fence. You keep trying to hit home runs, but they're long outs. You're going to lose the game. It's It's not too late to change your ways. And so he ends this section by saying, there's still hope for you. It's not the ninth inning. It's only the third inning. You've got some time to change this up here and have a different outcome. And so James gives them some ideas, some suggestions. In verse seven, he says, you need to submit to God. You need to submit to God. I think the, the, the idea is just as relevant for us today as well. It begins with just making a decision here and now to stop living for yourself and live your life in a manner consistent with that of a Christ follower. It all starts with a decision. It all starts with a decision. And too often we try to straddle two worlds. We want the best of both. You know, I want heaven. I want eternal secure. I want the benefits and blessings of God, but I also want all the other stuff that the world has to offer. And James is saying, and it's words that we all need to hear, quit trying to live in both worlds. And what he says here, it is you're actually what you're not, you're not. You may think you are, but you're actually, by, by wanting to be friends with the world, you've become an enemy to God. Very harsh, very strict, very um, strong terms and imagery there. Human solutions to human problems will always fall short unless, unless we submit ourselves to God. So submit yourself to God. Second thing James encourages us to do is to resist the devil. Literally, physically remove yourself from people and situations that will lead you away from God. 
For us, that might mean stop visiting websites and listening to podcasts that leave you full of fear and anger. Or stop visiting websites that provide an alternative to sensual pleasure. Or stop hanging out with people who damage your soul. Resisting the devil is more than just wishful thinking. It's actually taking uh, practical steps and doing things or stop doing things that could actually hurt you and be detrimental to your walk with the Lord. So submit to God, resist the devil. And the third thing James encourages people to do is come near to God through repentance and passionate pursuit. Stop being double-minded. Live your life in a way that honors Jesus. Do the, so, in other, so in addition to stopping things and resisting the devil, you need to start doing the things that build you up. You need to be honest with people. James is telling him you need to treat other people well. You need to submit <coughs> yourself to what the Lord wants. But interesting here for me is that in verse nine, James adds something else. He says, verse nine, he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Who in the world wants to live that way? I mean, really, this is not, I was like, all right, James, you had me until here. Uh, what, why would I want to do that? That just seems to me to have no real interest or value. Here's what I think James is saying. I think what he's actually saying is to the people, he's saying, you have an attitude of eat, drink, and be merry. Life is short, live it up. Get what you can while you can get it. You know, you know, he said, that seems your attitude. And he's saying that you need to have a little bit more sober of an attitude about the state of your spiritual soul. He's not saying that you need to live in misery. I don't think that's a literal application you need to, you know, um, you know change your laughter to mourn. I think it's what he's saying. Hey, stop taking this, stop being so, so passive about this. Stop taking this so frivolously. Stop thinking too lightly about this. This matters. This is a big deal. <clears throat> and instead, the fourth thing James points out, he says, choose to live with humility. Recognize the need for God in every area of your life and treat others the same way. Um, this uh, past Friday, so two days ago, I had a chance to go visit uh, Scott in the hospital. <clears throat> and uh, I understand uh, Mark went with him Wednesday and I think Jan actually saw him on Thursday and Friday. So three days in a row. I don't know if that was good for him or not, but he saw Mark, Jan, and me. So I'm hoping that was helpful, but uh, I don't know. So it was, it was really good to see uh, him. And uh, what's interesting, and I, I don't think I'm divulging any confidence in talking. I actually, about five minutes after I was there, Julia came, showed up there as well. So I wasn't expecting that. So um, and the nurse was in there as well at the same time. So we had a chance to interact and talk to her. In talking about Scott's situation, she actually used the word miracle, um, which I thought was very significant. Um, she made the observation, a comment that most of the other people, if not all the other people that came into the IC unit around the same time as Scott, Scott's the only one that survived. And so where he's at today, she said, she literally used the word miracle. Um, so that was, we're, we're excited and continue to pray. So continue to pray. Um, you know, anyone who's essentially been asleep for five weeks, um, you know, the body takes some time to figure out again what it needs to do. And so there's that, uh, um, that we just need to continue to pray that that's an accelerated process. 
Um, I think that's the one thing, if I can speak for you, it's been so much frustrating is that things, there have been positive progress, positive steps, but they've been really slow. And we just want to, ex- <laughs> we're impatient, aren't we? Um, we are. And let's just acknowledge, so God, you know, if, if it's okay, hurry up. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's interesting, you know, being there and see he had the, the trait collar and the thing, and just my mind just, I began to wonder, and just thinking about this, this um, about God and things of God. And sometimes I wonder if, we, if it would be more helpful to look at God as oxygen. So God is not a relationship that we can pick or choose. What if God is oxygen and it's essential that we, we can't live without it? We've got to have it. Um, now, I am incredibly grateful for ventilators. It allowed Scott to survive while his body recovered and recuperated and, and fought off the virus. Without the ventilator, we'd have had a very different outcome. So I'm grateful for that. But the ventilator is not how bodies were designed to live forever, long-term. It was, it's a short-term thing. Um, you know, it's a short-term help, not a long-term way of life. Spiritually speaking... I think it's possible to become content to live without God and try to live with a substitute. In other words, I think sometimes we try to live with a ventilator, spiritually speaking, living with the world as a substitute for having our own relationship with God. As, as actually, we're, we're trying, again, trying to manage both worlds. James is telling us that's not the way we were created to function. We're created to live life with God on our own, trusting in him alone. And that's what he wants for us. Now for us, we can know about God, but do we truly know him? Do we have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ? And to what does that look like? To what degree? Is that relationship based upon our behaviors is it based upon what's in our heart, what's in our mind? What we learned, what we see from the Israelites at that point in time, it was all of the above. It was, again, looking from the passage, um, <clears throat> I just lost it. Deuteronomy, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so this passage for all of us is just a great opportunity for us just to reflect. And, uh, you know, there are times in our life when we do well, and uh, there's other times where we don't do so well. We forget that God is really the one we need to be going to, and we try to take life on our own terms again, don't we? And again, James is talking to Christ followers here. So he's not talking about people. He's trying, trying to convert them. He's recognizing the fact that all of us struggle with this. This is not a, you're, you're done. You know, you deal with it one time and you're done. This is something we always deal with. Some of us more often than others, but it is something that's common for all of us where we forget that God, God, God is there. And we try to solve our own problems. We take on the burden of them and we try to take responsibility for them. And God is saying, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. So I think the words for James for us this morning would be those of, you can, you can let go. You can trust me for the outcome those things that you want, the things you've been waiting for, the things that you desire so badly, trust me. 
Don't try to create your own outcome. Don't try to create things the way you want them. Trust me. And I think for some of us here this morning, that's what we need to hear from this passage. There may be something we're wrestling with, something we're trying to control, something we're trying to direct. We want to get to a certain path. And God, I think, is saying to us this morning, let go. Enjoy the ride. You're going to be okay. And sometimes that's all we need to hear. You're going to be okay. And that gives us the ability to trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've come here today, we recognize, Lord, our, our need for you. And James reminds us that this, this, our need for you isn't something that um, is just one time and then we're good. Um, it's not as if, uh, um, like we have some kind of a physical um, abnormality and we can have a procedure done and it's all good and that's it. It's, it's never again. Lord, this idea of a spiritual um, dependency on you and our ability to trust in you is one that we, we have to deal with every day. Um, Lord, every day we wake up, there needs to be a conscious decision that today I'm going to follow you. Today I'm going to trust you. And uh, Father, that, that's easy to do when things are going well. It is really hard to do when life's, the circumstances of life are challenging. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that for any here who are in the middle of a challenging circumstance and are having a hard time trusting you for the outcome, and instead are trying to create an outcome that they want or they desire. Father, I pray that they would, they would hear your voice speak to them right now. They would sense the leading of your spirit. And that, Father, in the place of, of anxiety or fear or stress, they would instead have a sense of hope, a sense of expectation, and a sense of peace. Lord, you are trustworthy. You love us. We can trust you. So, Lord, help us. We believe. Help us, Lord God, in our unbelief. Uh, Father, we are an imperfect people, but we want, we are, but our, our joy, our hope and expectation is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, this day, this day, Lord God, we're reminded to put you first and to trust you for all things. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. I'm going to give the benediction here in just a second. Uh, but afterwards, if you would like to pray uh, with someone, uh, Dave and Jane would be up here by the drum cage. And um, Jake, sometimes it's good just to say, hey, can you pray with me about something? And if nothing else, it solidifies what God might be speaking in your heart. Um, so they're going to be able to do that. Um, again, if you're interested in coming to our house in two weeks, come see Betsy. Uh, or just let her know and we'll, we'll get you on. Uh, we'll make sure we have lunch for you that day. Let's, uh, let's stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.